We reserve the right for explicit language, but the algorithm reveals there is no such language in this episode. Hi, it's Mike. It's the Saturday show. Maybe I buried the lead. It's Saturday. And this is the Saturday show. What we do on this show is play a couple of interviews, one from the vault, or as we call it, the Wayback Machine. Hold on. I'm being told we stole that from Mr. Peabody and Sherman. This would be the closest I get to a Peabody Award. We play one from the vaults and one from the past week. This past week, I did a spiel on... Adam, broadly speaking, Adam Newman of WeWork getting funded to the tune of about a third of a billion dollars to start a new company, Flow, which is going to disrupt the rental market. It might. Newman, of course, was the founder of WeWork and disrupt he did, not just co-working spaces, but many of the brains of those who watch the economy, capitalism, and the cult around venture capital. So that is my spiel from this week. I talk about a uh, commentator who maybe went too far in her accusations against Adam Newman and what it all means. But I'm also going to bring you context because in 2020, we talked with Reeves Weidman, the author of Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. Reeves is, I think, the supreme, the premier chronicler of Newman. He has a lot more information than some of the other uh, broadcast or podcast sources. In fact, they took from him, but it was a really good interview. And I think you will get from it the fact that whatever Newman's flaws, and let's stipulate, there are plenty of them. It is, in fact, the system uh, that forced him into trying to become a unicorn. So that's a little uh, don't hate the play, I hate the game. But, you know, to go back to my Tuesday spiel, and women or minorities who aren't getting their venture capital, I understand hating the player a little bit as well. So enjoy that. Adam Newman was the messianic impresario behind WeWork. And his story is a cautionary tale, of course, but it's also really illustrative of where we are now in terms of the economy and seeking fortune at the expense of perhaps sanity. The name of the book is Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. It's written by Reeves Weidman, who joins me now. Reeves, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me, Mike. So I am interested not so much, I mean, I was interested, but for the purposes of this conversation, the aspects that went into Adam Newman's psychological makeup, they're interesting. The backstory is interesting. But what I'm really most fascinated with is what this says about where we are as an economy and what we demand from our entrepreneurs. So in one sentence, knowing that that's where we're going to go, tell me everything that the audience needs to know about who Adam Newman is when he starts making proclamations that the financial world starts greeting with, oh, yeah, that's worth a couple billion dollars. <laughs> uh, one, one sentence is hard, but Adam Newman founded an office space leasing company that he started describing as a physical social network in sort of the vein of, of every startup that aspired to be that in the 2010s and from there he got money from all kinds of people who were who were hoping that in some way he could actually turn a kind of boring real estate business into one of these giant 
sort of tech or tech adjacent unicorns. And that was kind of the basic pitch. Okay. So one aspect of that is unicorns. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, the financial world or people who fund projects wouldn't just like unicorns and aren't hoping for unicorns. They kind of insist on unicorns. And Newman wasn't against that, but he certainly epitomizes the idea of, well, if you have a million dollar idea, there's no reason why it can't be a billion dollar idea. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a sort of famous story from around this same era when when a lot of these companies were coming up, which was basically in the wake of the financial crisis. And there's a story about Airbnb that in their one of their early pitch decks uh, that they were putting together, they were a part of Y Combinator, this sort of famous incubator in Silicon Valley. I may butcher these numbers a little bit, but they had projected that they would one day have revenue of 30 million dollars. And one of the sort of advisors they were working with said, change it to a B, change it to 30 billion. And, and said that investors want Bs, baby, was the, the sort of line. And, and that, that was kind of the ethos that from the venture capital world in particular, what people wanted, they were not looking to fund nice, lightly profitable businesses, stable businesses. They wanted to fund these companies that were suddenly capable of growing very quickly and all over the world into these sort of giant behemoths. And if that meant that you funded 10 or 20 of them and 19 of those 20 failed and, and one became the next Airbnb or WeWork for a while or, or Facebook or Uber or whatever it is, that more than makes up for your, your losses everywhere else. And that, that was essentially the business model. Right, because there are all these companies like Uber, like WeWork, like maybe Airbnb, which is just having its version of an IPO, right. that aren't just pitched as successful or even truly transformative companies. They're pitched as, you know, world reshaping and multi-billion dollar ideas. And so far, the market, not with WeWork, but with the other ones, has kind of agreed with and propelled the fantasy. Yeah. And and the only fact check I would have there is that WeWork, at least in in some private ways, was pitching itself as a trillion dollar company. Yeah, Um, of course. Why why not? (laughs) Yeah. And eventually, at at a certain point, you have to keep sort of elevating your sort of expectations. And and so, you know, that was the goal. Um, it was what was kind of being celebrated both by investors and, and culturally in some ways. I mean, you know, the physical social network that Adam Newman was talking about came in the wake of the movie, The Social Network. And this was kind of this era of these sort of rock star startup founders um, in the wake of, of Steve Jobs' death, in the wake of Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg. And, and that's who Adam Newman wanted to be. And that is kind of what everyone was, was pushing him and many other entrepreneurs to become. Yeah. And the confounding thing, if you want to make a hard line and say, look, it's all a fantasy. No one's going to make hundreds of billions of dollars, you know, doing blank, releasing office spaces. Well, someone did it selling books. Yeah. He, he didn't just keep with books. And someone did it, whatever the hell you want to say Facebook does, putting people in touch with each other, with their high school friends they don't really like. There are actual examples of ideas yeah. that do they sound so much crazier than the WeWork idea? Do they really? Yeah, I think, you know, one one way that I think about some of those things is the big buzzword for most of the decade was networks and network effects. And the bigger and bigger you get, the more the more successful your business is, the sort of easier it is for you to cut costs um, and all of that. With WeWork's business, that just wasn't 
the case. Every new space that you opened, yes, WeWork got better at opening it more cheaply and efficiently, but at the end of the day, you're sort of operating in the physical world, not the digital world. And and that is just a much more expensive proposition. And I, I think that's sort of one other thing that we've we've seen from a lot of these companies over the past few years is is there have been attempts to sort of get into the physical world. And and that's been a lot harder. I mean Uber is obviously a huge thing, but the thing that it is hugely successful at is being a taxi service. It's it's not mm-hmm. totally clear that it has achieved the goal that investors want it to achieve, which is to reshape the way people and things move around the world. That is a, is a much grander goal and I think a much more difficult goal than what some of these kind of earlier tech companies were, were setting out to do. If we consider the messianic pomposity and grandosity of Newman, many of the other tech uh, slash real life billionaires, multi billionaires, seem to be of more substance than Adam Newman was. Is that is that safe to say? I think there's some truth to that. I mean, Adam was not a buffoon. He was a smart guy. Even people who are very critical of him would say that. There's there's stories we have in the book of you know he he was very good at like looking at a space and calculating in his head precisely how many desks we work could fit in there, precisely how much money it would make, precisely how much that would increase the company's valuation, and and then ultimately how much it would increase uh, his own net worth. So he was he was a smart guy. In in many ways, he was a good leader. And, you know, I I think a lot of people want to paint him as kind of a con man. I Mm -hmm. think there's a difference between being a good con man and a good salesman. And and it's a fine line. But but ultimately, what Adam was was trying to do was pitch a vision of something that that I think he believed in. I, I don't think it was something where he was felt like he was trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Where it came apart was that actually delivering on on the vision was much more difficult. And of course, you know, sort of to your point, he, unlike most of these other sort of the big entrepreneurs of our day who who came from from tech backgrounds, you know, Elon Musk was an engineer um, before he he became sort of the, whatever he is now. Um, and so, so I think that that is a difference. But I I think Adam certainly had skills that that he does share with some of those people, which is kind of their their ambition. I mean, ambition is a is a is a skill set for anyone trying to do something like this. Right. If it was Theranos, essentially based on a lie, based on a grift, based on would it be great if this technology exists? Let's just pretend it does. That goes as far back as the uh, P.T. Barnum and, and before. We work. If it had just a little less, I don't know, ambition, it would have been worth yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars. He yeah. had a generally good idea. Like if he were to cash out at WeWork or value it at its logical value, how much do you think it would be worth or he could have made? Billions of dollars. Um, wow. It, it, might be, it might be single digits. It might eke into the double digits. And, and that's sort of, I, I think, one of the lessons of this story is, is, yes, like WeWork tapped into something. People liked these offices. It was not Theranos where the blood testing machine never worked. The, the offices were there. You could see them. People enjoyed, you know, people had complaints about them the way they had, had complaints about, about any office. Office. But, but by and large, people liked the offices. And there's a version of, of WeWork that tries to kind of stabilize and becomes a very profitable global company that stands for a better kind of office experience. And that's it. And I think where things did get off the rails for WeWork were in two ways. One, 
just the ambition to grow as fast as they did was, I think, something that pushed the company beyond what it was capable of. And then the ambition to push into so many different things, to get into apartment living, um, to open a gym, to open an elementary school, to invest in a wave pool company. And then the way that Adam started talking about all of these things eventually as under the banner of elevating the world's consciousness, sort of separated the company from the reality of what it was actually good at. And if there is a lesson, I think, that future entrepreneurs can take, it's it's that, that just because you're good at one thing doesn't mean that suddenly you're going to be good at everything and that the best business decision for you might be to just focus on doing the thing that you're really good at. I know, except that the guys they look up to, what if Jeff Bezos took that lesson and stopped at books or stopped at just retail, stopped at st- a store? And what if what if uh, Google, uh, Sergey and Larry took that lesson too? I mean, it's easy to say, know what your core competency is and stick to that. Only the greats, the people who right. these guys we're talking about are putting on the Mount Rushmore, either had a better understanding of what their core competency was or just push past it and found more competencies. Yeah, and, and I haven't done a full case study of all all these all these different companies. But if you look at, at Amazon to take one example, you know, Jeff Bezos wasn't making movies in year three. You know, that was year right, fifteen right. or twenty or whatever. But he wasn't it was. getting but I also think he wasn't getting offered billions. It's kind of a tough thing where you have this company you really did breathe into life through your own hustle and your own storytelling ability, a company that should be worth hundreds of millions, if not as you say, billions. But the flaw is instead of low billions, you go for the high billions. Right. I've never been in that situation. I don't know how I'd react. <laughs> well, and, and, and the thing that I left out is sort of the important moment in, in WeWork's history that we haven't talked about yet is, is SoftBank's arrival. And, and that happened mm-hmm. in, in 2017. WeWork at that point was, was running out of money. Um, you know, the business was still going well, but they were running out of places to look for investment to continue growing. It looked like they were maybe going to go public and they were looking into all these different ways that they might kind of, you know, moderate the growth of, of the business and start to become more stable. Then Masayoshi-san shows up at WeWork headquarters and offers Adam Newman $4.4 billion and says, be crazier, grow faster than than you ever could because I want you to become this giant world-spanning thing. And, and it, you know, a lot of WeWork employees would look back at that moment and say, if only that hadn't happened, it wouldn't have enabled some of the worst impulses that Adam had, that the company had. But in the same breath, they will also admit that they have never been in a position to turn down $4 billion and no one would really begrudge Adam. No one begrudges Adam for doing that. So it is a sort of tricky thing, but I, I, I think it that that is sort of the related lesson is is there were so many of these companies that were just getting tons and tons of investment. This is, again, a number I'm, I'm not totally sure of, but but Amazon, Jeff Bezos took one round of venture capital investment. WeWork at, at a certain point was on, on seven or eight rounds before trying to go public. So the, just the amount of money that private companies have been able to raise over, over the past decade, really, has just enabled people to sort of try crazy things that, that ultimately don't really make a whole lot of sense. Right. And you've got to start blaming whoever was the person who um, funded his yep. fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth rounds or whoever made those decisions. They made worse decisions than Adam probably did. Yeah, certainly at a minimum, they, they enabled it. And, and they, you know, there were many very smart business people who at, at various points could have said, you know, Adam, this, this, uh, maybe this isn't a good idea. And, and in some ways they did, but very rarely did they actually put their foot down 
and 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 try to stop anything because it kept working for a while. And I, and I think you know I, I do think there there's been sort of uh, we are only going to begin reckoning with all of these companies that burned all this money to try to disrupt various industries had the appearance of of growing very very quickly, but we're not charging what they need to charge to actually become profitable companies. And that that goes for WeWork, that goes for all of the ride-sharing companies, the delivery apps that we all depend on now. All of these companies are going to have to figure out how to operate without just a fire hose of, of venture capital funding them. So there's another aspect to Adam's story, and you as the person who wrote it has to have uh, thought about this a lot. And it's the role of narrative. Yuval Harari writes about this, that, you know, human beings are so good at imagining stories, and maybe it's too good. Because as I see it, you can interpret the Adam Newman story as a guy who really understood how to tell a story and really understood how to weave a narrative. And you know what? It wasn't bullshit. It was true. And that reinforced the power of the narrative. It just wasn't true at quite the levels he pretended it was. As a writer and someone who expresses these ideas through narrative and through words, is it very hard to translate that when the the fundamental flaw is just a numbers flaw and not a story flaw? The idea that that WeWork was you know, that Adam had come from a kibbutz and it had made him believe in community. And so had his co-founder Miguel. And they both together wanted to create these more sort of communal workspaces. There was truth to that. I think as much as the numbers being disconnected from reality, what became an issue was the fact that the narrative became disconnected from reality. Once WeWork switched from make a life, not a living. That's something you can wrap your head around. And and building mm-hmm. a better day at work, that's something we all want and was very clearly connected to what they were doing. When the mission statement at the beginning of 2019 changed to elevating the world's consciousness, even people <laughs> who believed in the company were like, what does that mean? And And suddenly it created all these problems, I think, for we were just in how it presented itself and and the numbers were a huge issue but i do think a big part of the company's demise and and the company still exists but the demise of the ipo was that they lost the narrative and that they couldn't connect what they were saying publicly to what they actually did and the and the way they made money so i think there is a lesson again for entrepreneurs of like you have to make sure that whatever story you're telling connects with what you're actually doing because eventually people are going to see through any kind of bs Right. Here's how I would interpret it, which is that it is actually about numbers because at a number of a billion dollars, make a life, not a living, that's a billion dollar idea. Sure. But if you're forced to have a 10 billion or 20 or 35 billion dollar idea, that's a bunch of one syllable words that ends in a two syllable <laughs> word. You need to go with elevating the world's consciousness. You know, you need to become a cult at that, and a cult leader at that point. Yeah, you and, do. And, one's, and what's driving what? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think they're, they're hand in hand. I mean, I think if you look at the early 2019, at that point, we were brought in that new mission statement. They also suddenly had a $47 billion valuation, which was never really real. You know, you could do the math in various ways, and that's the way Adam Newman wanted to publicly present the math. And and I think that put a target on its back. So, so you had this situation, yes, where to meet that valuation, you had to bump up the the expectations for what the company actually did. And it was also this point where they sort of became the we company, not we work. And we, they had 
we grow and we live. And there was this sense of we're going to be continuing to expand into all these different things. The number feeds that. And then, you know, on the way down, both having that giant number and this outsized valuation when you can't actually deliver on it, it's going to hurt you. I heard an interview where, you know, you said that Adam hasn't gotten in touch with you, though many of his former employees have been quite gleeful about the revelations. But for someone who is supposed to be um, that powerful, was he surprisingly unsavvy with you or others like you, other people who were in charge of telling his story? The trouble is that unlike the carefree days early on when when he was spinning the narrative of WeWork is now uh, the lawyers are involved. And he is in this situation where his billion dollar payout, which he got theoretically upon leaving WeWork last fall, he has not received it. And and SoftBank, which was going to fund that, has, has in fact sort of reneged on it for a variety of reasons. There are some court hearings coming up on that. And I, I think for that reason, among others, he he's chosen to stay quiet. But I do think eventually Adam Newman will get out there and try to tell his side of the story and and try to rehabilitate his image because I, I think he's still young. He's 41. And and I don't think he's going to be someone who wants to just rest on his laurels and, and surf his way into retirement. Billion Dollar Loser is the name of the book, The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. Reeves Weidman is the guy who wrote it. Thanks, Reeves. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Last week, the investor Mark Andreessen, co-founder of Netscape and co-founder of his venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz, wrote a check. He wanted to disrupt a market, as venture capitalists do. The market in his sights was residential rental real estate, meaning the check was bound to be a big one, and it was. $350 million it was, in fact, the biggest check the firm had ever written. And that check went to a famous entrepreneur, or perhaps a notorious entrepreneur. If you look at it one way, Adam Newman founded a company, WeWork, now worth $3 billion. If you look at it another way, Adam Newman left WeWork after his company lost about $40 billion in value. But the early investors in WeWork got paid, and later investors may well still For all the crazy talk of being some sort of lifestyle, kibbutz, higher plane of consciousness, WeWork owns valuable real estate and is returning to solid cash flow after being crashed and crushed by the pandemic. And oh yeah, oh yeah, there was a lot of crazy talk. You could sample it via the couple of nonfiction books, the many articles in the Wall Street Journal that the Wondery podcast pulled from or the Netflix series based on that Wondery podcast. Why are you coming to us? Because you have all the money. (laughs) The question is, if a guy who's worth billions wants to fund a guy who lost billions, who are any of us to mess with their flow? That is the name of the company, by the way, Flow perhaps reminiscent of a state of blissful creativity, perhaps evocative of the wave pool business Newman acquired when he ran WeWork. But back to the question, whose business is it of outsiders to get in the way of flow of capital from investor to potential CEO tasked with executing the investor's vision? The answer, according to critics, is 
it's their business, or more to the point, the lack of business that women and minorities get in terms of funding from venture capitalists. The poster boy for profligacy gets a second chance, and this is a story that they see happening over and over again. Among the loudest voices lamenting this development was Allison Byers, a CEO of a company that seeks to level the playing field for underfunded entrepreneurs. On the tech blog, TechCrunch, Byers cited her rage, adding, quote, there's this undertone of acceptance and almost learned helplessness, or like trauma we've all experienced, so it doesn't make the same impact anymore. On Bloomberg, she once again spoke of her feelings of disgust. It's visceral. It hits you. But then it also quickly becomes a muted rage because, as I tweeted, it is expected. It is not a surprise we are used to it. But you, you have to feel that rage when you are part of that community that is just historically blocked from accessing this funding. Now, of course, it is not the case that if Newman didn't get Andreessen Horowitz funding, an entrepreneur from a historically underrepresented and underfunded group would have. It's also not the case that the investment is a bad one, could well make the investors lots of money, which is why investors invest. But it is certainly the case that Newman has more baggage than LaGuardia Airport. Those were the feelings informing Allison Byers, and here were some of her facts. Whenever something big like this comes out, a big funding round, a lot of underrepresented founders, particularly women, people of color, are asked, why, why the outrage? Why do you have this emotion? Uh, well, it's because only 2% of VC dollars go to women, 2% go to Latinx founders, 0.67% go to Black founders, and there are less than 100 Black women total who have raised more than a million in VC funding. These are important issues to be raised, and sometimes in the world of startups, issues are more easily raised than cash. But undercutting Byer's argument was essentially how I found out about it. I read a newsletter called Morning Brew, and it had this odd note today. The flow story in yesterday's Brew Review included a comment made by CEO Allison Byers to Bloomberg. Byers has since retracted her statement, and we've updated the article. Retracted? What is this, an official diplomatic cable and offer to sign Kevin Durant in the offseason? So I tracked it down. The original Bloomberg write-up of the interview had this notation. Correction, August 21st, 2022, an earlier version of this story included a comment made by CEO Allison Byers to Bloomberg. Byers has since retracted her statement. It did not include what her earlier statement was. The video of her appearance from which we pulled the two clips you heard was prefaced. And if you go there now, you see this on the screen with these words written out. This video was corrected to remove certain statements made by Allison Byers about Adam Newman, which she has since withdrawn and which should have been challenged during the original broadcast. And again, no mention of what those statements were, the statements that were now being memory hold. Well, finally, I found it. Here's what Byer said, quote, what is a major prestigious investment house doing backing fraud a second time? Because there was no charge of criminal fraud, both Byers and Bloomberg must have felt that putting the allegation out them made them vulnerable to lawsuits. We asked Bloomberg for a comment or clarification of what their correction policy is regarding taking down statements without reference to the original. We're still waiting to hear back. I'm sure Byers, if asked, would say, and I may well ask her, that she was speaking metaphorically, or in the common, not criminal sense. But that's what occasioned the retraction across multiple platforms. It created 
by the way, something of a Streisand effect for me. I felt a need to figure out what it was that she actually said on Bloomberg TV. But the Streisand effect, which is when hiding a fact inspires others to seek that fact out, also let me in on the funding stats, which were lamentable, but not surprising. I did wonder about the wisdom of leading with rage, of giving quotes citing rage, of doing TV interviews speaking of rage. I bet buyers would say, yeah, it's not the wisest, but it is honest. On the other hand, the work of establishing sustaining systems that even the playing field and strike a blow for a fairer, better method are probably, I'd say maybe inspired in a flash of anger, but better executed with more fortitude than fury. It's a tough lesson for would-be founders, founders that never got their first chance, but it's one you can't put a price on. Though, if you did, I would guess that $350 million would cover it. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara as the assi- in the capacity of assistant producer. And Joel Patterson serves as senior producer. And I shall talk to you Monday. <laughs>